Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nicole Karapaniotis, uh, who is Associate Professor at Rutgers University. Uh, we're talking about a fascinating brand new 2021 publication, Branding Bhakti, uh, Krishna Consciousness and the Makeover of a Movement. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, uh, Raj. I, this is great. I'm, I've listened to your podcast for a while, and um, I've learned so much. So I'm excited to get to share today as well. Fantastic. Uh, now you have to tell us, how did you get to studying this? How did this all start up for you? Um, well, to be quite honest, um, I never intended to write a book about ISKCON, um, which is surprising to some people when I say that, but I, um, you know, I'm a scholar of North Indian Vaishnavisms and theistic Vedanta. And, you know, my earlier work has been on um, digital religion. Um, And so my, you know, my sort of the overlap there is between, um, you know, I'm interested in ritual studies and then also, you know, theistic Vedanta. So I've done, my earlier work um, was about uh, the sort of ontology of digital images. And so I was really interested um, in embodied forms um, of God and um, just really sort of, you know, just sort of taken by the question of whether or not, um, you know, Hindus or Hindu religious practitioners would understand forms of God or images of God that are digital to be, you know, ontologically full or ontologically real forms of God. So I did a lot of work on digital images and, um, you know, digital uh, ritual. So I, I looked at um, how these embodied forms of God are sort of framed online. And so I was interested in questions of, you know, how do you um, perform a puja on a computer and how do you frame sacred space um, on the computer? Are you able to, can you hear me, Raj? Yeah, I can hear you clearly. Oh, all right, all right. Okay. Um, so I, I've looked at... Um, you know, questions of how do you frame uh, ritual and sacred space and, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So as I was doing my earlier work on digital images, um, I noticed that a lot of digital images of Krishna were actually posted by ISKCON groups, ISKCON devotees, um, ISKCON temples, whether that was on Facebook or whether that was on just different temple websites. And so this made a, you know, a degree of sense to me because I, I thought that, um, you know, by, you know, by and large, Hindus believe these digital images of gods and goddesses online are full forms of God. And so I thought, well, ISKCON devotees um, are interested in sharing their tradition. Why not share their tradition by means of Krishna's images? So I started there. Um, but what kind of led me to this project in particular was the fact that I started to notice that there were a lot of ISKCON websites um, on which images of Krishna were sort of conspicuously absent. 
And so as I started to sort of dig into images of Krishna being posted by ISKCON devotees, I noticed that a lot of websites had no images of Krishna whatsoever. Um, and I thought this was curious at first and became even more curious to me the more I dug around. So I would find images of people doing yoga or people meditating, um, images of, you know, mountainscapes or beachsides, etc. So I was sort of struck by this, uh, this disconnect. So I started, you know, to kind of um, look around even kind of even more. Um, you know, one day uh, I got a cold and this is sort of how the project really got started. I, I hadn't, you know, I had been sick for quite a while and I hadn't really been able to work. So I thought, okay, well, one thing I can do is sit on the couch and look at images online. I can manage to do that. So um, I stumbled upon a number of videos uh, by Radhayananda Das Goswami about Krishna West. And this really started to sort of trigger my mind um, into questions, you know, what is going on with the ISKCON movement? So here's, you know, a guru in the ISKCON movement talking about, you know, wearing um, polo shirts and khaki pants uh, and not having any... Um, you know, full sort of pujas in the temple and uh, sort of backing up even further. Um, as an undergraduate, I went to the University of Florida. That's where I got my, uh, my bachelor's degrees. And I don't know if you know this, um, but the, uh, the ISKCON movement is huge at the University of Florida. So the Hare Krishnas um, are a big staple on campus. They have this massive operation um, called Krishna Lunch. And every day they serve uh, food to students. And when I was in college, this will probably date me a little bit, but it was like two or three dollars and you could get a plate of just delicious vegetarian food. It was right in the Plaza of the Americas, which was this beautiful lawn right in front of the library. And the ISKCON devotees would, would sing and they would play the harmonium and the Murdanga drums. And it was just great. And everybody went and ate the food. And I used to go with my best friend, um, and I also lived next door, incidentally, to the ISKCON house in Gainesville, to the Hare Krishna house. So I had a little studio and right across the driveway was the Hare Krishna Center. And so I had always been fascinated by them, um, you know, as a religious studies undergrad. I, um, you know, had a sort of bent about me where I was kind of a nihilist, like I thought this society is too mundane for me. And here are these great people next door and they've sort of renounced this society and they're living in their own, um, you know, their own religious reality. Um, and they have this great food and this great music. So uh, that was quite a while ago. But when I started to see these websites where Krishna's images were absent and kind of seeing videos and new um, sort of yoga studios and meditation studios, I started to really wonder like, what has happened to the ISKCON movement? Has it changed so much? since I was an undergrad and sort of what's going on. So I started to dig, um, that's really the root of the project and trying to uncover, you know, what these differences meant and what produced them. I also, um, you know, I consider myself very much a storyteller in the kind of work I do. And, you know, the more I started to ask questions of particularly the, the gurus who are doing these rebrandings in the movement, um, I just detected, you know, a lot of pain in their in their voices and just they would talk about wanting to accomplish certain things in their lives that they hadn't been able to do and that they were nearing the end of their lives and they really wanted to to do important work. And this work was important to them. And I thought, I think these are some stories that I need to tell. So uh, 
there are definitely stories you need to tell. Uh, there are definitely stories you've told. And why don't you give us a bit of a sneak preview? Um, 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 I was initially going to next ask you about the layout of the book. You can start with that if you want. But really, um, the burning question for all of us is, what is the nature of this makeover? Um, um, you know, what are the strategies of this rebranding? You know, you know answer that however you feel, you feel fit. So... Um... So I guess I can kind of talk about, um, you know, the nature of the rebranding first, um, you know, in the structure of the book, which I can talk about, you know, after um, afterwards in more detail. But, you know, the the overarching, I would say, nature of the rebranding is an attempt to um, make the ISKCON movement more global than it already is. And so there's a real desire on the part of the individuals whom I call the Krishna branders um, to do outreach for people who, um, you know, who they define as Westerners. And, and I, I try to problematize that term in my book. Um, so, you know, the, they use the term Westerners essentially to mean, um, you know, anyone who, who is not of Indian descent. And, um, you know, they sort of have this idea that, that ISKCON is naturally attractive to Indian Hindus, but that Prabhupada, uh, Swami Prabhupada, the founder of the movement, you know, and his gurus who preceded him really wanted the movement to be a global movement or a sort of world religion. And so they, um, those individuals in the book whom I call the Krishna Branders are really trying to aim to make the movement more global, to attract a wider audience of, of people. So, um, they're rebranding the movement um, in different ways, but trying to sort of make um, ISKCON a more sort of, well, this is a sort of tricky part here. Are they trying to make ISKCON a more um, meditation-based movement or a more sort of yoga-based movement? Or are they trying to make ISKCON, um, you know, seem to be a more meditation-based or more yoga-based movement, right? So, Part of what it means, you know, to rebrand something or to brand something is, you know, branding is about storytelling, right? And it's about meaning making. And so, you know, branding is really about um, not sort of, not really about who we are, but who do we want others to think we are, right? That's the sort of definition, I would say, one of them um, of sort of branding. So I think that the the overarching project is to try to draw people to the ISKCON movement um, by rebranding it as meditation or by rebranding it as yoga. So to sort of draw in a wider audience of people. Could you say a bit about the agency of this rebranding? Is this sort of a movement that folks are swept up in that's an instinctive response? Is it sort of uh, based on some kind of conscious committee work at the upper echelons of ISKCON? Is this a, a, a grassroots response? You know, what is the agency of the surrounding? Um, that's a good question. So it's, I would say, um, it's in pockets of the ISKCON movement. Um, so, you know, it's being, it's being led. So in my book, I, um, you know, I talk about, uh, the stories of three gurus in particular, um, all of whom were initial, uh, you know, devotees, um, of Swami Prabhupada himself. And, um, are also members of the G of ISKCON's GBC, which is the sort of governing body of the movement. So um, I would say that it's not entirely a grassroots uh, kind of movement, but it is, it is also something that is, 
um, at the upper levels of the movement's management. Um, but that being said, these gurus um, that I profile in this book are very popular ISKCON gurus who happen to have a lot of uh, disciples across around the world. So this is a movement, um, you know, this is something that is being done in India. It's something that's being done in the United States. Um, it's being done, you know, in New Zealand, in Australia. So um, they've inspired a number of devotees to work on their behalf to um, to produce this movement. So I would say it's both, you know, I, th I think one of the interesting things about the ISKCON movement that I've learned, um, you know, it, it is, um, it is, in my view, um, a very, you know, evangelizing form um, of Hinduism and, you know, whether or not ISKCON is Hinduism is itself, um, you know, a sort of contested question, but it is a very, you know, evangel evangelical movement. Um, and so, you know, the founders of the movement inspired their disciples to spread the movement on their behalf. And so there's a lot of leeway that devotees get in order um, to accomplish this. And so in some ways it is grassroots. You know, there were, there were many, many times when I was traveling around the United States or in India where it did seem like people were just sort of coming up with ideas and thinking, this would be great. This is a great idea for a program. Let's do it. So it's not really so much of a top down um, entirely. It's, it's sort of both. I'm not sure. Does that answer your question? Did you want? Yeah. Um, questions are always scenic route, sort of generative to spark conversation. So yeah. Um, yeah. There's lots of content there in terms of this uh, evangelical thrust. Uh, currently, um, I'm, 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 how to say, what, what do you see? Who do you see as the primary target now? Has it changed? Is it typically uh, for Westerners interested in Indian spirituality, uh, for Hindus who want to learn uh, more about uh, their tradition, for Vaishnavas in particular? Like, I'm, you know, I, I have no specific answer in mind, but what would you say in response to that? So, the are, like the ISKCON movement in general, is that sort of broad? Yes, speaking? yes. Who is it targeted to in terms of this rebranding, do you feel, or have you found? Um, so this rebranding in particular uh, that I talk about in this book is, uh, you know, geared toward uh, Westerners. And I should qualify that term. So that is the term that uh, that devotees themselves use. Um, you know, it's not the term I myself would use. But, you know, by Westerners, uh, ISKCON devotees mean just everyone who is not of Indian descent, right? Um, and this is a term that all, you know, that I've heard all devotees use. I mean, I've heard devotees use this um, in India as well, which is not something I was expecting. So I, I went to a number of temples in India and in Juhu, um, in Chalpati in Delhi. And, um, you know, this is a term that, this is something also that I was interested in in the project. But so I think they're interested in attracting a global base of devotees outside of India. And so I, I should qualify this. Um, they, the reason they, they want to do this is because they feel that they've already been very successful in India. So it's not the case that they're trying to, you know, change the constituency of the movement to, to only have, you know, people from say everywhere else, right? They, they feel that they've been very successful um, in India and with the Indian community around the world, which is something that was striking to me because when I first started to talk to ISKCON devotees um, and gurus, I thought, well, why are you rebranding? You're doing so well. Like I went to, you know, when I was first working on my project on digital images, I went to 
um, you know, Iskana Delhi and Iskana Vrindavan. And um, I mean, the lines to get in the temple were just miles long for some of the festivals. And they were so jam packed and they were, there were so many great devotees. There were so many great programs. The temples were always busy. And so I thought to myself, like, that's strange because I thought the people who do rebranding do rebranding because things are not going well. But it certainly seems that things are going incredibly well. So, you know, what I learned um, is that kind of by tracing it back historically, um, which is what the Krishna branders do, they, they're really trying to, to attract a, just a broader group of people. And so they'll use the example... Um, you know, of other world religions, for example, that are not, you know, region specific. So they'll, they'll talk about, you know, traditions like Islam, for example, that are, um, you know, they're converts from all different cultural groups uh, to Islam that talk about Christianity. So I think the real desire is to make um, the ISKCON movement a world religious tradition, right, as they understand that, um, just like other traditions that are so-called so, um, you know, one thing I really found interesting about this project, because, you know, to be honest, I wasn't sure what to make of this desire to attract, you know, Westerners, so to speak, uh, to the movement. I, I wasn't sure how to think about this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, um, you know, I'm familiar with sort of colonial, um, you know, colonial sort of discourses and colonial traditions in India. So I, I was a little bit troubled by this. Um, this outreach in, in many ways. But, you know, as I dug sort of historically, I, I realized that, you know, the sort of very um, sort of foundational ideas of ISKCON have always been about trying to have a global movement. So the second chapter of my book really looks back to, um, you know, devotees would trace it all the way back to Chaitanya himself. But but I look at, um, you know, Bhakti Vinod Thakur, who was... Um, you know, an Indian religious thinker who, um, whose primary ideas were really about how can he make Vaishnavism universal, um, you know, and, and that was the sort of primary aim that he had. So he wanted to, um, you know, and, and part of this had to do with, with colonial influence. And so I think uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur was a, you know, Hindu reformer, just like other figures, we might say someone like Ramohan Roy, um, but he was a more sort of theistic type of reformer, but he wanted to make Vaishnavism uh, universal as he understood it and passed it along to his son, um, Bhakti Siddhanta uh, Saraswati, who, whose you know, main sort of idea was to bring his understanding of Vaishnavism you know, to the West, so to speak, right? So, th so there was always even in the figures and traditions that predated the ISKCON movement that were in the ISKCON lineage, I would say that the primary role of them was always to become global. Right? So even in, um, you know, ISKCON devotees' understandings of, uh, of Chaitanya himself. So, you know, many Vaishnavas understand Chaitanya to be, um, you know, a form of Krishna who came into the sort of human body in order to experience love of Krishna through his own form, right? So to, to come as a as an individual who can experience love of Krishna, Krishna wanting to experience himself. Um, but ISKCON devotees often talk about Chaitanya as a figure who came not just to experience love of Krishna, but also to spread 
love of Krishna. Right? So even in interpretations of central figures, central texts, um, so we could look at the Bhagavad Gita, and I forget the exact verse, but I believe it's in the 18th chapter. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a passage where uh, Krishna talks about devotees that are the most special to him. And, you know, I've I heard a number of times ISKCON devotees interpret this text to mean um, that those, those devotees who, you know, distribute uh, Swami Prabhupada's literature are most, devo- most dear to Krishna. So, you know, I, one thing I wanted to show in this book um, was that this, this sort of drive to uh, outreach, global outreach, is really at the core of the movement. And so um, I think that what the Krishna Branders are doing, um, and by Krishna Branders, you know, the, the, the figures who are trying to attract a global audience by rebranding the movement can really be understood uh, as trying to extend that project. Yeah, the so earlier uh, you mentioned, okay, well, uh, things are going so well. Why the need for a rebrand? Uh, and it seems uh, to be the case then the metric for success is um, how robust ISKCON is among a quote-unquote Western audience, then it seems. Would you say that's accurate? I, th- I think in a number of ISKCON circles, that's accurate. Um, you know, and and so, you know, I, th- I should sort of, you know, I mean, I, I think the sort of elephant in the room is this, well, what is a Westerner, right? What does that even mean? Um, and so I think, you know, by, by the term Westerner, I have heard, um, you know, the Krishna branders refer to people um, in, in Japan, for example, or in China or in Australia or, you know, wherever it might be, not just in, you know, in terms of like, you know, Europe or not just in terms of the United States. Um, but I think the history of this term really does go back to the sort of colonial roots where Westerner was initially understood as groups of people who um, seem more sort of ethnically, racially, culturally like the British. But that's not the way the term is used now. So if we kind of qualify it and say that what devotees mean by Westerner is really just uh, global, which I do believe is, is, is their use of the term, um, then yes, I think that, that the goal of the movement is to try to attract a global audience. Um, so this is not to say that there aren't, you know, disagreements about this within the movement. I'm certainly not trying to paint a picture that ISKCON is a, you know, a monolith or that there's only one, you know, kind of view on this. Um, but I would say that, that a very large goal of a very large number of ISKCON devotees is to try to attract a global audience, um, which is, you know, what's kind of at the root of these, um, of these rebranding, you know, places and websites that I talk about. Uh, this is not to say that that all ISKCON devotees have this view. Certainly not the case. Um, there's, there's many who think we're doing just fine. We're doing great. Um, and so, but, but I do think that, you know, that there is a concern, I think, to maintain, um, you know, Swami Prabhupada's initial vision, but also I think there's uh, some concern that if they don't keep this up, um, and try to do sort of global outreach that the movement might, you know, kind of dwindle in terms of, you know, its, its relevance. So it's a sort of existential soul searching, I think, is the, the kind of moment I've captured 
or have tried to capture. Yeah, it seems that um, um, uh, in many ways, various uh, religious traditions are grappling with this ever-shifting world in different ways, ISKCON being no exception. Of course, um, uh, it's a unique tradition that's, that, that is addressing the pressures of modernity and globalization in very unique ways. Why don't you tell us about the uh, chapter-to-chapter structure of the book? Um, yeah, so I start off, um, you know, uh, well, I mean, the introduction just sort of talks about, kind of raises the questions that I, I liked that I'm looking at in the book. Um, and the main overarching question of the book is, um, you know, how do how do religious groups uh, rebrand themselves in order to attract a more diverse, um, you know, range of, of participants? And so how do religious groups recast their messages Um, you know, to the uh, sort of tastes and interests and existential, you know, preferences of different groups of people, wider groups of people. So that's kind of the bigger issue that I'm looking at. Um, And this is a very common, um, you know, position across religious groups. So you can look at a number of religious figures, um, you know, not very related to ISKCON. Um, So somebody, you know, like Joel Osteen, for example, who, um, in many ways can be understood as um, a religious figure who has rebranded in Christianity, um, you know, to reach out to audiences who are interested in, you know, rebuilding themselves after hardship or after struggle or kind of retaining hope um, in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so we see this, you know, with um, Buddhist mindfulness, there's a number of groups that are, um, sort of rebranding Buddhist traditions as sort of mindful movements in order to capture the interests um, and tastes and preferences of, of a wide group of people. So it's not the ISKCON movement alone that's doing this. It's, it's um, you know, it's, it's a trend that's happening around the world. It's been happening for a really long time. And I, I think, you know, um, in many ways, it's, it's happening in areas outside of religion, too. I think just in the humanities now, right? We're sort of faced with this question of... Um, the humanities, unfortunately, sadly, are not doing well in this, you know, just universities um, and academic life in general. And so I think these sort of questions about, well, how can we sort of reframe what we do in the humanities to, to attract, you know, the attention not only of students, but also of university administrators and funding sources. So I think these questions are, are just big, bigger than ISKCON. So that's my sort of introduction raises that Um the second chapter, I, um, I, you know, I go into some detail kind of asking this question about um, why is it that the ISKCON movement wants to rebrand at all, right? They're, they're, doing, they're doing very well. Um, I sort of talk about the numbers. I talk a little bit about um, the history of the decline of the ISKCON movement, um, at least in the United States, in terms of devotees. Um, you know, so there were a number um, of, of, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think too much has been written about these lawsuits in some sense, um, but there were a number of lawsuits that the ISCOM movement faced, um, you know, um, that were settled in the 80s and 90s, um, and the movement just lost a lot of money. And they also, um, there was, you know, with the anti-cult movement scares, um, you know, around the same time, they, they lost uh, some bit of, um, you know, 
clout, I think, in the public eye. And so there were a number of sort of um, events that happened in the United States that sort of caused the ESCON movement to decline financially and in terms of um, perceived legitimacy, right? Um, and so I talk about those um, as sort of setting the sort of sociological stage for wanting, you know, to, to do this rebranding. But um, the second chapter, you know, looks back at the history, uh, trying to contextualize the Krishna branders, um, who are the individuals who are rebranding the movement in order to attract a more global audience. And so I look at figures like Bhakti Vinod Thakur, I look at figures like um, Bhakti Siddhanta uh, Saraswati, and I also look at um, textual verses that the Krishna branders themselves raised as the sort of um, central component of their of their mission. So, you know, there's this particular verse um, that I talk about at length uh, that devotees cite, um, you know, from uh, from the Padyavali of Rupa Goswami, they talk about, um, you know, wanting to be the servant of the servant of the servant of Krishna. And so wanting, uh, you know, being a part of ISKCON is not just worshiping Krishna and you know, relishing that devotion, but also sharing that with others as a sort of primary um, sort of mission. So I, I, t- I talk about how that particular, um, you know, drive to to serve the, the gurus and their mission, um, you know, I trace that from the original figures to Prabhupada himself, Swami Prabhupada, and then kind of trace that to when he came to the United States in 1965 and how he passed that on to his own disciples. So, you know, one thing I try to do in, in that chapter is connect the history of ISKCON in the United States with its sort of foundational roots in India. I think often in scholarship on ISKCON, there's people talk about one or the other, right? So there's, there's great scholarship on the ISKCON movement, you know, after Swami Prabhupada left India to spread the movement around the world. Um, so there's great work on, you know, ISKCON in the UK and there's great work in ISKCON, um, you know, in, in Ghana and in the United States. Um, and then there's great work on uh, sort of foundational movements and figures uh, who predated the sort of formal ISKCON movement in India. But there's not a lot of work that kind of connects the two. And in my mind, um, you know, they're intrinsically tied. I don't think that you can really understand, um, you know, diaspora ISKCON, if I could call it that, um, if you don't look at the, you know, Indian historical context of the ISKCON movement. So I try to do that in the second chapter. Um, the, the third, fourth, and fifth chapters are the sort of substantive chapters of the brands. Um, and so we could talk about these in more detail, but um, you know, I look at, you know, I take the fact that, okay, given that these Krishna branders have this as the reason um, for wanting to rebrand the movement, how exactly do they do that? Right? So they want to attract Westerners, um, so-called, they want to um, do this on behalf of their gurus. So how exactly do they do that? So in the, the third chapter, I look at um, the... Um, the sort of brands and the apparatus, I, I could say, um, of Devamrita Swami, who is um, an ISKCON guru who um, is based in New Zealand and travels around New Zealand, Australia, but also around the United States and Canada, actually. I think he has, um, or I think it's since closed, but there was a lounge that he opened up in Toronto, um, you know, where you are. So um, 
he came up with an idea um, for for rebranding of ISKCON that um, his his position is was essentially that um, the ISKCON movement cannot attract uh, Westerners, as he would call them, or just a global audience. I prefer to say, um, if it is presented to them in temples, and this was a controversial position. Like I I. I was uncomfortable with this talking to, to these gurus and I, I pressed them a lot. Like I, um, this is something that was uncomfortable for me. Like, you know, what do you mean? Like this, um, how is this not a, you know, a just extension of the colonial project, you know, and, and they were great. I mean, they, um, as just interlocutors, the ISKCON gurus were really, um, I was quite bashful to ask these questions at first. Cause I thought, if I say that, they're going to kick me off this project. Like they are going to tell me, look, stop researching us. I'm not answering your questions anymore. Um, but I really pressed them hard. You know, I thought, well, what do you mean you're you're going to present this movement to to people outside of the temple? So, but you know, Dave Amrita Swami came up with this idea, um, which he calls a bridge or a bridge program, which essentially means um, that you know you present ISKCON. Um, in what he calls lounges and lofts. So he, he builds, um, you know, in New Zealand and Australia, there's one in Fishtown in Philadelphia and there where I live in Toronto, these centers um, that are meditation studios and yoga studios. And you walk in and it looks nothing like an ISKCON temple. Uh, there's a couch, you know, there's some yoga mats. Um, they have programs on sustainability and, on cooking and yoga and mindfulness. And you wouldn't know it was an ISKCON center if you didn't know it was an ISKCON center. And so he he built this framework where, um, you know, if you present ISKCON to people uh, in a way that sort of obscures the fact that it's a temple-based movement in many ways, then they will become attracted to uh, this rebranded form and then ultimately become attracted to the sort of, you know, kind of mainline ISKCON, if I can use that term, right? So um, his idea was that there's, and his his use is, is it's a transcendental on-ramp. So um, so that, you know, you can have to take a transcendental on-ramp. Those are not my words, those are his words, but, you know, and the ramp is the lounge or the loft program, so the yoga, the meditation. And then that ramp leads you to ultimately the destination, which is the ISKCON temple. Um, so um, I'll, I'll kind of move through this quickly. I'm sure you, you have some sort of questions for me here. Um, so that's kind of the framework that he developed. Uh, the second chapter, I look at the, um, the brands of Radhanath Swami, who is um, a world, you know, sort of world-renowned ISKCON guru, uh, who is rebranding the ISKCON movement as yoga. So um, he does a number of, you know, kind of theological interpretive moves to place um, surrender and devotion to Krishna as the primary goal of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And so he gives a lot of sort of lectures and sermons about how devotion to Krishna is the main goal of the Yoga Sutras. And then um, has built a number of really successful yoga studios um, in Manhattan um, which is a pretty high-end yoga market, from what I understand. From what I understand, um, 
And they're real yoga class. I mean, I, you know, I'm not really into yoga, but I, I went to a few of the classes just as part of the ethnography for my book. And they're, they're hard. They're, they're, there's a lot of people they're, they're, they're doing yoga, they're doing inversions and, um, you know, headstands and, and, and all of it. And, um, sort of builds this yoga brand as a way to draw people in to the ISKCON movement. So uses the same sort of framework, um, as the bridge model. And then the last chapter looks at um, a different approach to attracting a global audience. So this is the new uh, sort of startup, if we can call it, new ISKCON startup called Krishna West. And uh, this is um, a movement or sub-movement, I should say, um, started by Rudayananda Das Goswami. And he basically makes the argument that you can't just make a sort of bridge to the ISKCON movement. So you can't present people with yoga and meditation studios and then expect them to then make a turn and join the ISKCON movement, you know, that's rooted in temples. So he says, you know, you should just um, create a new sub-movement of ISKCON. So uh, not a new ISKCON movement. I feel like I need to be very clear about that. He's not trying to, to make a different movement, um, but a movement within ISKCON that basically... Um, you know, is what he would call the core of the tradition. Um, and, you know, conceptions of the core, shifting goalposts, and we don't really talk about it like that in religious studies, but his understanding of the core of the movement is that it's just the teachings and the food and the chanting, and everything else can be scrapped. So, um, you know, he he's starting up centers where um, people chant the, um, you know, the, the, the mantras of ISKCON. They read the text of ISKCON, um, you know, they, they offer food to Krishna, but they do so um, in spaces that don't look like temples. They do so, you know, wearing not uh, dhotis and not saris, but wearing, you know, khaki pants and polo shirts and I don't know, other sort of forms of dress um, that might be interest that might be appealing to them. Guitars are used, uh, you know, people, sort of food like pizza. So it's really just about, I think even within this kind of this internal debate about whether the best way to draw people in is to present them with something that's a rebranded form and use that to sort of draw them into the, to the temples or whether the temples just need to sort of be, be re-envisioned. So um, there's a lot of questions here, you know, um, a lot of questions here. What, what is the, what is the ISKCON movement if it's outside of temples? And what does this mean for, you know, worship of Krishna in embodied forms and, and how innovative is too innovative and, and how are devotees going to receive these and all these sorts of questions I take up in the conclusion. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's so much, so much data there. That's fascinating on a number of levels. Um, all of these uh, rebranders, as you call them, are they all swamis within the, the ISKCON movement? Yes. Um, and do you know if they have conversations with each other about their very different visions of the future of ISKCON? My, um, my sense is that they do. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think they share more uh, than they share more than they, than they sort of disagree on. So I, I think they all, um, you know, share ideas about kind of doing outreach. I, I think that, um, 
the biggest sort of rift would be, I would say, um, you know, between the sort of Krishna West approach and the approach of the other of the other gurus. So, um, you know, I think that um, but even then, I know that that they are that they are all friends as far as I, you know, as far as I was able to tell. Um, and they do, you know, respect each other and also sort of more traditional approaches, too. So this is not, um, you know, a lot of people w- would kind of see this and think that, um, you know, there's, there's a sort of tension in the ISKCON movement. And I don't I don't think they see it that way. Um, I think that there are uh, perhaps other members of the ISKCON community who might see it that way. So these figures have been controversial even within the movement. Um, but at least amongst themselves, they, they see themselves to be sort of attracting different um, market segments, if you will, right? So this is a book about marketing, and I studied the sort of supply side of this. Um, and they do understand there to be different market segments. And so they're sort of trying to attract specific groups of people within a larger ISKCON umbrella. And so... Um, you know, I think in that regard, they do, they do share ideas and sort of share a vision about this. Um, Would they think of what they're doing as branding consciously? Or is that a term that's being used for the sake of the discussion in the book? So that's a term that I use. That's the sort of theoretical lens that I'm using. Um, I don't think they would look at it as branding. Um, I think, well, I should take that back. I think that, so the first, you know, the chapter three of the book, I talk about uh, Dave Amrita and his bridge program and his, his models. Um, I think he would use the term uh, branding, if not marketing. So he's very, you know, kind of, um, well, he's just very smart. Um, you know, he, he went to Yale and he's, he's very um, well studied on, um, sort of business models. And he it talks very openly about this. And so he does, um, he has studied, you know, marketing and branding, and he uses language of marketing and branding. So he talks about, um, you know, how do you get someone from being a cold contact to a warm contact, right? That's the language of marketing right there. So how do you get somebody who knows nothing about the ISCON movement? How do you get them to warm up to the movement and want to know more? Um, you know, he talks about, um, loss leaders and that's the term he uses, right? So a loss leader is like, you know, when you go to, um, I don't know, like Best Buy, I don't know if Best, is Best Buy open anymore. I don't even know what's open anymore because everything's closed with the pandemic. But, um, if you go to a store like Best Buy, you know, they might, they might give away like free printer ink because they want you to buy a printer. And so he talks about, these kind of examples as he talks about ISCON. So he says, you know, um, we, we build, you know, meditation studios and we build um, these rebranded centers because we want to draw in people who might not otherwise be interested in the ISCON movement. And so he talks about actively, you know, how can we reach people who um, might not know that much about the movement? How can we sort of appeal to them? And so I think he might use that language. I don't think um, I don't think Radhanath Swami would use that language. I, I asked him directly, um, you know, and um, you know, I I think part of the issue here too is you know this question of because uh, I've been asked this question a lot and whether or not they use the term branding themselves, and I, I think there's some discomfort 
with the term branding um, because I think it, it seems to imply to some people a sort of deception, right? Or a sort of um, maybe a monetary interest or, um, you know, just some sort of ulterior motive. And the, the gurus and the Krishna branders that I, that I worked with in this book don't have that as an intention, right? I, I think, um, and I hope I don't come across as saying something otherwise, but I think they just very sincerely have this tradition that they really want to share it with people. And they, they find themselves in this position that, you know, um, lots of the groups that they're trying to get to come to the Eskon Temple just are not maybe naturally interested in or don't really know that much about kind of theistic temple worship. And so they're really trying to um, introduce the movement to people in ways that, that might catch their interest. And so I think that would be how they would put it. That is how they put it, um, rather than in terms of branding. Right. So there's this, um, you know, term they, they, they would use something like, you know, Yukta Vairagya, which is using, you know, items and articles and ideas in the world in the service of Krishna. So they would say that, you know, they're using things like yoga and using things like meditation in order to bring people to the ISKCON movement. So that would be the language that they would use, um, not, you know, so much about about branding. Um but it's an it's an interesting question, you know. I um, yeah, one of the things I sort of well, anyway, I'll I'll stop there for now. <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating question and and, and fascinating tension. Uh, a very recent interview we've had on the podcast was of um, Jacob Kyle, who was the founder of a platform called Embodied Philosophy. Uh, he has a yoga and um, spirituality background, and he now has a very thriving online platform um, that offers courses and subscriptions and various uh, various other uh, services that are for purchase. And so we had this conversation where he, he uh, albeit for a, 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 an online modern endeavor, really reacts to the idea of branding and sort of the language of sales and marketing and yet he accepts that that is what it is and it's so interesting because i think shorn of shorn of the stigmas and the associations of the language of sales and marketing implicated in uh, manipulation um, exploitation really uh, it's a powerful lens i remember um I got to be the first uh, world religions prof. I was a sessional at um, Ryerson University in 2017. Okay. Um, very um, tr- downtown Toronto, world's most diverse city, you know, yeah. statistically. And so part of the frame of teaching world religions that I found effective with the students was through the lens of sales and marketing. What's each, what's each tradition selling? What does it cost you? What do you have to give up for it? Right? How is it being positioned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And it was a fascinating sort of thought experiment. So that's why I had to ask the question about the branding. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, you know, that's that's an awesome approach. Actually, I like that. Um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I think religions are, you know, sort of amorphous rhetorical products. Here I am using the language of marketing again, but you know, I mean, they're sort of rhetorical discourses and they're shaped they're shaped by by people 
and by actors who are, you know, acting with particular interests. This has always been the case, right, for various audiences and in different contexts. And so um, I, I don't know, for me, at least, I think that religions um, as rhetorical discourses have always been marketed and branded, right? I, I don't think this is anything new. Um, I think we can sort of look at this historically as well. That's my take oh, Without question. I mean, think of, think of the idea of the marketplace of ideas that's always existed. Uh, all religions are selling you something or selling you on something, whether it's your own potential, whether it's a vision of humanity, whether it's a means of salvation, whether it's, um, um, you know, some sort of template for conducting your life as a human being. Uh, they have something or many somethings <laughs> that are being sold, right? Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're being sold in an underhanded, exploitative manner. But nevertheless, there's something on sale from every world religion, yeah. without question. Um, uh, so conclusions. Um, what, what does one take away from this fascinating research of yours? Um. You know, I think in some ways, I'm. I think there's a number of questions to take away, rather than um, necessarily a number of answers. I mean, um, you know, I, I I think and questions. I mean, questions for the ISKCON communities in general. I think really what's at stake in this work, um, you know, is sort of what's to come of this. I think there's a number of existential questions that are important for the ISKCON movement. You know, um, part of you know, part of one of the questions that I, I sort of take up in this book um, that is not just my question, but questions that are being asked in the movement as well, you know, kind of has to do with, um, you know, what's the core of ISKCON? And, um, well, just to kind of say it, you know, a lot of people hear this sort of traditions and the, the sort of groups and not groups, but sort of um, new centers that I write about and they think, well, isn't that deception, right? So this is a question that just comes up. Um, you know, is the ISKCON movement trying to position itself as yoga and meditation in order to get new converts? Um, or, I mean, you know, is it really yoga and meditation? And so I, I think, um, and this is a hard question, and I asked I asked this question so many times, and it was in a, one of those questions where I thought, surely they're going to kick me out. At this point, if I ask them, I mean, I remember I, I interviewed Radhanath Swami, who is this very famous guru. He's very humble. And I was so anxious. And I thought, I have to ask, you know, is this, is this, do you think this is deception? Or well, what, what might someone think if they thought it was deception? I was very nervous. Um, and he was very adamant, as all the Christian branders were, that, um, no, it's not deception. We are offering, you know, yoga and we, we are offering meditation and that these are just ways to sort of broaden our community. Um, so I think the real question is, you know, what is ISKCON? I think is really the what's at stake here. So for, for people who are sort of, um, you know, so Radhanath Swami brought up this idea of, you know, simultaneous, you know, difference, difference and non-difference um, that, you know, we can be both yoga and meditation and temple 
ISCON and they can coexist together and there can be multiple ISCONs under one rubric. Um, and that, that's the sort of society that, that Swami Prabhupada himself envisioned. Um, on one end of the spectrum, there are sort of purists who might say that, you know, the only real ISKCON, so to speak, would be ISKCON in the temples. Um, ISKCON that's sort of based in these, you know, you know, puja and arati um, and offering food and sort of Sunday feasts. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, you know, are people um, who would be sort of more interested in these branding projects you know, projects. And so the, the idea really is, can they coexist together? And what does that mean for the ISKCON identity? One of my main conclusions for this book that I really wanted readers to take home, uh, you know, is that the ISKCON landscape has radically changed. So scholarship on ISKCON is still really focused on ISKCON in the temples, um, not just residential ISKCON, but even just sort of ISKCON devotees who have moved outside of the temples, who attend the you know, programs at the temples, but still the temple is the focus of much of the scholarship on ISKCON. Um, but the ISKCON landscape has changed a lot. The ISKCON landscape now includes meditation studios and yoga lounges and eco farms and, you know, vision boarding classes and karate classes and, you know, you name it, guitar classes, you name it, they're there. Um, and so we can't really talk about the ISKCON movement in the same way. We need new maps. We need new schemas and frameworks for understanding the ISKCON movement. And um, one way I think that we need to do that, the best way we, should, we can do that, in my view, um, you know, is through the lens of marketing to really understand why these new centers came about, who they're geared for, um, you know, just to look at the diversity of the sort of ISKCON topography, so to speak. Um, but I, I think the conclusions are that the landscape is, is radically different than it was, you know, the ISKCON movement is not just, you know, Rathiatras on the streets um, anymore of, you know, major cities. It's that. And it's also a number of other programs. And so devotees themselves need to reconcile, you know, what is ISKCON um, and how do we accommodate these differences? And I think scholars need to do the same. Yeah, anecdotally, it was clear to me that a major shift was taking place from my sort of um, minimal exposure in that I was uh, invited to some social gatherings by um, some colleagues who were connected to ISKCON. This was early 2000s. And for me personally, I certainly felt um, uh, it was palpable to me that there was... Um, a level of expectation and pressure in the air um, with respect to uh, the adopting of ideas or the seeing or the experiencing of what was felt to be important. And um, let's see, that would have been to maybe 15 years later, uh, 2017, I took my Ryerson class to a field trip Iskon Temple for a variety of reasons yeah. to, to learn about a variety of, you know, there's so many angles yeah. through which you can interpret uh, such an experience. And my goodness, was I pleasantly surprised at the radical shift and relaxing of the pressure of processization, which was non-existent. It was a very much a, a, a welcoming guided tour. And of course, at the end, there was a kirtan in which people could participate if they wanted to or not. Yeah. And it was sort of like we're leaving the dessert on the table. Uh, you 
you want you want to have a taste be our guest you right. don't Hare Krishna, we're in Toronto. Go where you need to go for whatever you need to go. You know, it was, so it's, um, this is just, you know, minor anecdotal um, uh, data, I guess. Um, I've joked many times on this podcast, I have no idea how I became a textual scholar. I just love observing experiences and people so much. It's just so bizarre. Um, Anyhow, the book is so fascinating on so many levels. 30,000 foot view, it seems that, you know, this is a, this is a, an ancient enterprise. Um, what to do upon the death of the founder of a major religious movement, new religious movement. Take a look at all, all the world's religions where we have access to, to even scant data. Folks scramble what's canon, what's practice, what, you know, it, it, it needs to evolve to survive. Um, and yet... Um, uh, the, the the times through which we live are unique to say the least, <laughs> and so the ways in which ISKCON is able to adapt, um, uh, I think it's really unprecedented in terms I, of the maneuverability afforded by the times through which we live. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and I, I think that the, the times are different. When Swami Prabhupada came here, there was a much more of a sort of cultural interest, I would say, in sort of new guru movements um that's not really here as much as it is as now as it was then so i think you know the iscon devotees are sort of struggling um you know with this uh with you know the times are very different just economically um socially etc but it's a perennial question i think you know every um so when the founders of religions pass um you know and i keep um you know kind of bringing back the sort of state of higher ed, which is just something I'm thinking about a lot. Um, you know, I recently became the department chair like like a month ago. So, so I'm thinking about all these sorts of questions, right, about identity. But Congratulations. Hey, well, I'm not sure. Or, 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 or my condolences. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Thanks. Uh, thank you. But, you know, just sort of how do we reach students? How do we interest students in the humanities? Um, what are some novel ways we can do that without losing who we are? Right. And these are complicated questions. I think these are the questions that the ISKCON devotees are struggling with even today. You know, how you have to, you know, sort of adapt and reshape yourselves if you don't want to become, you know, completely irrelevant, whether that's a religious group or, a, you know, a subject that's studied in, in a university. But at the same time, you don't want to become... Um, there's a fine line between sort of reshaping and pandering, right? And I think this is something that religious communities themselves struggle with. So if you reshape too much, then if you kind of cross over into sort of pandering to the crowd, then you lose some sort of identity. And how do you navigate that in a space like a world that we're living in now? I think that the Krishna branders are just ultimately trying, you know, with a a purity of intention, I would say, um, and I do want to stress that, just really trying to say, like, you know, how can how can they reach people? You know, they have this love of Krishna. They want to share it with others. How can they do it in a way that is going to attract people's interest? Um, you know, and I think in some, you know, I think that's really what they're doing. I, I think there's some recognition um, that, that ISKCON temples, um, you know, are are sort of foreign spaces to to many um, you know people just I mean just in terms of language right so there's a lot of 
Um, I've been to a number of ISKCON temples, you know, where the speaker will speak in Hindi, for example. Um, and I, I think even just on basic levels, right, they're trying to kind of broaden the movement out to if there were to be, you know, an American student or, you know, somebody who doesn't speak Hindi, how would they try to, you know, reach out to them? So I think they're just trying to, to broaden the scope on a number of different levels. Yeah, the word that keeps coming to mind in the back of my mind is bridging. And there's so much of what's happening that's fascinating that I can't relate to at all in terms of my personal experience. And yet there's so much that I relate to very much in terms of um, bridging um, scholarly findings and public accessibility or public interest or or framing the things we do at the academy in ways in which um, um, uh, 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 that, that showcase the relevance or the meaning the significance of, of why we bother spending X years trying to figure this thing out. Um, uh, but, you know, more and more I'm thinking of this this online school that I have. It's called the School of Indian Wisdom. And those are the questions. To what extent are you presenting wisdom teachings and or scholarship in a way that's authentic to you and your tradition and your training, which is of paramount importance? Um, um, and at the same time, uh, making darn sure that you are reaching who you need to reach with uh, the quote unquote branding, with yeah. the titles, with the concepts, with the with the outreach, and so it really is fascinating. Um, uh, there has long been a connection in the back of my brain uh, uh, since about 2016 between the the language and the enterprise of marketing and um, the, the ancient tradition of um selling religion <laughs> right so i think it's 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 an apt lens um is there anything else about the book that you wanted to share or touch on um, i think i've touched on most of the things i wanted to talk about i'm sure once i stop the interview i'll Think about a million things I wanted to say. But... Uh, this is just an appetizer, right? <laughs> just an appetizer. Um, yeah, you know, I think I think there's a lot more work to be done. Honestly, I, I wish I, I wish that I, I could have done a lot more. Um, I think this is just a really ripe area, but well, it's um, uh, it seems to me that the best books are beginnings. Uh, rather than conclusions, and it's it's clear to me that um, the ISKCON movement will will only diversify in its uh, intention to uh, survive and fulfill its mission of 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 reaching a global audience uh, in a variety of ways, and I suspect there'll be a number of studies on that in coming years and decades. Well, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Fantastic. For those of you who've been listening, for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Nicole Carpaniatis, who is associate professor at Rutgers University. Uh, we've been speaking about her brand new 2021 uh, Indiana University Press publication, Branding Bhakti, Krishna Consciousness, and the Makeover of a Movement. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, keep 
listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the dynamism of religious movements. Take care. Thanks, Raj.